I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello and welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast, episode one of series nine. We are back once again <laughs> and I'm joined by, of course he is, the heinously hectic, the hissedly hazardous, the haggard and hapless Ben Carter. How you doing, Ben? Doing really well. Hapless kind of threw me, but the rest of it sounded really nice. Ha- hissedy? Huh? Heinously <laughs> hectic, hid- hideously hazardous, haggard and hapless. Very nice. Yeah, doing really well. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely, uh, lovely introduction. Super happy to be back with another series. And core blimey, what a case to start on. How are we doing, Dan? <laughs> Very good. Welcome back, boys. It's so good to see your faces because series eight was like this, wasn't it? <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, very excited to be back on the old YouTubes. Weird, isn't it? I like to say by popular demand. I think that's fair to say. A lot of people are asking when we're back. Um, when we had a meet up with people, they're asking we're going to come back to YouTube and we're happy to be back. We've kind of freshened things up this series. Uh, we hope you guys like it. And um, yes, Ben, I mean, you figured out this episode is it's not just a big case, but also it's... It's a, it's a big moment for us as a podcast, I would say. It's actually the 100th I Could Murder podcast episode. And uh, yeah, a big, big... I don't know how it took 199 episodes to get here. Uh, this, this particular case but yeah big moment for the poddy and thank you so much for everyone that's sort of had our back in the break series eight for the youtube people is available it's just slightly different it's audio only but we're back with sort of the hybrid video and audio version uh, for series nine which we're super hyped about yes we are back with a big big case of course it is the case of ted bundy also known as the lady killer the campus killer the most famous serial killer in the world just a rhyming one there for the people that like the rhymes uh, ted bundy he's small and he's grumpy um, but he's actually not that small, which is why I went for a second option, which is Ted Bundy. He's launched a GoFundMe. Um, but why he'd be doing that, I do not know. Oh, so he didn't... Okay, so it's, none of that makes... No, not really. It's just okay. A bit, just a bit for me to be creative. We'll just give you some crowns next week. Um, yeah. Extremely wicked, shocking, evil and vile. And as we like to do, we're going to throw it to producer Dan to set the scene. Ted Bundy's name remains synonymous with some of the most chilling and gruesome crimes in American history. Active during the 1970s, Bundy was a serial killer known for his charisma, good looks and ability to charm his victims. He targeted young women, luring them under the guise of trustworthiness before violently assaulting and murdering them, also while evading law enforcement, changing his appearance and changing his approach. His reign of terror spanned multiple states, leaving a trail of unimaginable brutality behind. Over a four-year period, Bundy created a lasting legacy, 
solidifying him as arguably the most infamous serial killer in the world. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a divisive case in terms of the opinions behind it. As Tom said, I don't know if we've put it off, but it's always been there in each series we do the audience vote and I'm always a bit... I have always kind of dreaded it winning that one, more so because we only then have like a week to sort of prepare for it. But I think it's it's a case of we have comments saying, oh, everyone's already covered it, you know, you don't need to do it. Or we have people saying, how have you not covered it? Um, so it's kind of a, a tricky spot that we found ourselves in. But we, what we're going to do is because it's such a massive case, and obviously there are so many other podcasts and uh, documentaries, films out there about this case, there could really be a two or three parter out there. Um, we've condensed it slightly. So the, the analogy I like to use is you can get a margarita pizza at most pizza joints. Ours is with a slightly different base. Um, you might like it. You might not come back for it again, but you've you've had a nice time. That's quite it. I, I thought you were going to go with, you can get a full pizza, but maybe just a slice, a taste of just the best bit. It's always, first slice is always best, but you've yeah. gone for a different base. That works. Your one works well as well. So maybe we use both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, boys. Someone's at the front door. Two seconds. Yeah, no worries. Hello mate, how you doing? Hello mate, got this packet for you. Ah, yeah, cheers. Is this this Beer 52 company? Yeah, they're sponsoring. They're legit good, aren't they? They look really cool. Yeah, they're great. They, uh, aren't these the guys where you can get a free case of eight exclusive beers from all around the world? Yeah. And you just have to cover the postage? Yeah, like I said, we, yeah, we know about Beer 52 are class. They're the ultimate beer discovery club. Sorry mate, could I just grab showcasing the world's very best beers? Honestly, bud, I need to crack on. Including South Korea, Argentina, and New Zealand. What the fuck is going on? I'm pretty sure this box features eight different beers from eight different countries. That is bloody mind-blowing. Honestly, shut the... It's so cool. You can choose between light and dark beer. And you get a couple of tasty snacks inside. Yeah. And a blooming magazine too. The uh, award-winning <laughs> magazine for Ment. And did you know you can pause your subscription or cancel any time? So it's a no-brainer. Oh, well, look, your code is here as well. It's uh, beer52.com forward slash murder to claim a free case. What? That's beer52.com forward slash murder. Okay, mate, thank you. I bet sponsors like this really help the podcast out, don't they? Yeah. You got any jobs going? Goodbye. Oh, who was that, Dan? Yeah, no one. Continue. And we also like to start the episodes off with a quote, and this comes from Ted Bundy himself. All these years later, it's very difficult to, to talk to about talk it, about and, and, and reliving it through talking about it uh, is uh, difficult to say the least, but I want you to understand what happened. It was like coming out of some kind of horrible trance or, or dream um, I can only liken it to after, you know, I, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but to have been possessed by something so awful and so alien, and then the next morning wake up from it, remember what happened, and realize that basically, I mean, in, in the eyes of the law, certainly in the eyes of God, you're responsible uh, to, have, to wake up in the morning and, and realize what I had done. And with a clear mind and all my essential moral and ethical feelings intact at that moment, uh, uh, absolutely horrified that I was capable of doing something like that. So at long last, the 100th main channel episode of ICMAP, let's jump into the case of Ted Bundy. 
Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on the 24th of November 1946. Um, he actually shares uh, the very same birthday with a, a distinct member of the podcast, so spooky. He was born in the city of Burlington, uh, which is in the state of Vermont, America. Ted was born in the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers uh, to his 22-year-old mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, who went by Louise. The reason for Ted being born in this particular location is that his, uh, his biological father's identity has never been confirmed. So there's, there's a lot of speculation around this. Um, it's predominantly speculated to have been a number of different men, including two United States war veterans, one of them being a former member of the US Air Force, Lloyd Marshall, and also a former soldier named Jack Worthington. So yeah, there's a lot of people on the Lloyd fence. There's a lot of people on the, the Jack fence. There's a lot of people that believe it might be Ted's granddad, who was his biological father. So it's a, it's a bit of a mucky pot, though neither of these links can be proven. Uh, and a copy of Ted's birth certificate lists his father as simply unknown. Ted's mother, Eleanor, insists that both men abandoned her shortly after she fell pregnant with Ted. Speculation regarding Ted's father does remain rife to date. However, a lot more people believe in the Lloyd uh, theory because there is another birth certificate out there that states his father as being a salesman and Air Force war veteran named Lloyd Marshall. But again, this individual has never been found and never come forward. Another quite disturbing rumour that Ben mentioned briefly there about Ted's father is that he could actually have been his maternal grandfather, Samuel Cowell. There's quite a lot of suggestion that leans toward Ted being the product of incestual rape. Even from his own family members, Ted bore a striking resemblance to his grandfather and also shared a number of his characteristics and traits. A very famous and successful psychiatrist by the name of Dorothy Otnell Lewis, who interviewed and analysed many of the world's most infamous serial killers, claims that she received a blood sample from Ted, which she had DNA tested, and the evidence from the test apparently proved that Ted's grandfather was not, in fact, his father. Yeah, so that, that will come up a fair bit in, in Ted's childhood, which again, from this case, it's not one that I've avoided. I've obviously been familiar with the case for a few years, but you always hear interviews with him um, talking about his childhood and how amazing it was. And then looking into this, actually, it is horrific. It doesn't excuse what he would do later in life. And again, that from the outside, he, he's very glamorized and he's had his sort of run in Hollywood as well. And then when you sort of dig a little bit deeper into this case i could not believe the brutality of it all it really did shock me but yeah he gives interviews and it has made many statements to suggest that he had this perfect you know very happy all-american childhood which was very much not the case ted said the following about his childhood people don't want to feel like they've been fooled like they've known someone and yet they didn't know someone people are fishing around they want a hook they want a smoking gun they want to cause an effect and it's not going to be there it's not going to be there. I wasn't beaten by my father. I was never abused as a kid. There is nothing in my background that could lead one to believe that I was capable of murder. Absolutely nothing. So from the moment Ted was born as a single mother, Louise really struggled with finances whilst also dealing with, at the time, 1940 societal stigma of having a child out of wedlock. As a result, baby Ted was sent 400 miles away to Roxborough, Pennsylvania to live with his grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor, for the first three years of his life. The couple raised the baby as if it was their own and would introduce Ted to other extended family members, friends and neighbours as their son in order to avoid the stigma that we just mentioned. Even Ted as a youngster was convinced that his grandparents were his biological parents and that his biological mother was in fact his older sister. Mm. I think we've had that a few times in other cases, I'm pretty sure. It does sound familiar. Mm. They would even tell their own family members this, which I found, found quite interesting. 
Despite Ted saying in later interviews that he had the most idyllic and perfect childhood, as we mentioned, it only took until he turned three years old for signs of concern to start appearing. According to his auntie, Julia, she once woke up from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives, with the blades pointing towards her. Once she sat up, she noticed her baby nephew Ted stood by the side of her bed with a massive grin on his face. Massive grin it was. Julia would go on to tell the psychiatrist Dorothy Lewis that we mentioned earlier that she did not consider this particular incident strange, uh, which, is, which is interesting. She would go on to say that it was only three knives and that in fact it was just a prank from her baby nephew uh, and as a result she was not scared or concerned that Ted may have been troubled. Ted's biological mother Louise described him as follows. Our son was the best son in the world. He was thoughtful, responsible and fond of his siblings. We took him to church every Sunday. He was a very normal and active little boy. I think one of the questions there with the knives is how we actually got access as a three-year-old to knives mm. would be one of my questions there. I'm only imagining big ones as well. I'm not imagining like butter knives. Oh, a yeah. butter knife. No, no, no. They're definitely um, bread. What a thought. Uh, yeah. You think? I think so, yeah. Could be a knife block. But then why so high? Who was it that we did that climbed really high as a child to try and turn a radio back Ramirez? on? Ramirez. Ramirez, yeah. Which reminds me of... Um, is it Space Jam? No, it's not. It's Look Who's Talking Now, where one of them's watching um, Michael Jordan and they climb the thing to try and jump off it like Michael Jordan. And then John Travolta catches them and they don't smash their head and become a serial killer. Ted seemed to love living with his grandparents as well as his biological mother and aunt. Ted absolutely adored, idolised and respected his grandfather, Samuel, whom he apparently clung to and very much identified with throughout his early years. The unconventional family tried to provide Ted with as normal childhood as they could. There was always a roof over his head and there was always warm food on the table. Even sandwiches, they had to be, they had to be warm apparently. Cucumber, warm cucumber. I'm not a fan of it personally, but you know. Do you like warm cucumber, Dan? I love it. Nice. It's perfect. <laughs> Ted always had social interactions with other children and seemed to get on well. However, cracks continued to appear as he grew older. And I'm not talking about wrinkles, Ben. I'm not, I didn't aim that toward you. Well, they probably did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah they would have done, yeah. You aimed it towards me. No, I'm saying I didn't, and then you okay. interrupt. No. Ted will go on to say. <laughs> <laughs> My childhood was not an unpleasant one. Those were the days of frog hunting. Frog hunting? Mm. Have we done oh, frog hunting before, boys? Not hunting. Picture taking. We've done that in your garden down with the pond. Did we? We took pictures of him. We didn't hunt him. Have you still got those pictures? Or was it? Or maybe it wasn't a frog. Was it a lizard? It was uh, that weird little being. Not, not weird, little. There was a pond snake uh, and a common lizard. Common lizard. Yeah, he used a, lot, he used a lot of slang, didn't he? <laughs> around just gra- graphing up the walls. Yeah. Sorry, anyway. He does do that. Ted continued. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days of frog hunting and marble playing. Adventure. I never lacked playmates in those days. There were always more than enough kids around to do something with. First grade, I was somewhat of a champion frog catcher. He said that with so much pride. (laughs) I did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was a frogman. I pride myself on the ability to spot that pair of bulging eyes, which will bob just above the surface of a murky pond. I can relate to it. (sighs) Bulging eyes above the murky surface, yeah. Mm. It's probably a metaphor in there somewhere, but... Um, My brother and I used to get frogs out of drains. What'd you do with them? It's like that chimpanzee one with the frog. Put them in my dad's pond. I think oh. he got really angry about it because they app- apparently can be quite violent to fish. Oh. They get can, on their backs yeah. and stuff, yeah. yeah. Get on their backs. Do you mean literally or just just shouting at them when they go... <laughs> <laughs> little column A, little column B. They're very coy around him. 
As well as saying this, Ted would also state that his grandfather Samuel ruled the house to an almost tyrannical extent, and that both he and his grandmother battled with various mental health conditions and alcoholism. Additionally, when Samuel drank, he became increasingly xenophobic, violent, and racist. He would apparently also speak aloud and hold conversations in empty rooms, as Ted understood it to speak with ghosts, which is quite, um, spooky. Ted would later say that Samuel would regularly beat his wife, uh, daughters as well as the family dog in front of the rest of the family after a few drinks, but would apparently spare him from any of the aggression. So Ted, kind of clinging on to him, identifying to him, and you know having similar traits to him, immediately I think that's definitely a red little flag popping up there. His grandfather's behaviour once got so bad that he allegedly threw Ted's Aunt Julia down a flight of stairs as a punishment for oversleeping. You'd be fucked, Ben. I would be in so much trouble in that house. Mm. Uh, Maybe you live in a bungalow. (laughs) Maybe throw out the front step. Yeah. My ankle! (laughs) Ankle first. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's a a ridiculous punishment for oversleeping. I don't know what their plans were, but that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Don't try and justify it. (laughs) It's a big shop, Julius. It's a big shop. (laughs) Ted's grandfather would also explode into a fit of rage any time that the question of Ted's paternity was raised which is quite odd behaviour given the rumours that have been put forward about, uh, you know, their relationship. But then also maybe he was just very um, strict on, you know, any news spreading about his daughter giving birth out of wedlock. On top of all of this, Samuel would apparently swing any neighbourhood cats that entered his property by their tails in front of a young Ted. And that's not swinging cats, isn't like people like Jazz. That's um, that's just cats going around the neighbourhood. Yeah. Which, um, it's gross. And that needed clarifying. So it did. Yeah. yeah. Some of these things. I mean, your pizza analogy, people are like, what, this could mean anything. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Let's cut the crust off this. Go on. The difficult part about piecing together different bits of information regarding Ted's childhood is that they are often quite contradictory. So Ted's words, as we mentioned, should be taken with a pinch of salt regarding his childhood. He's always um, been considered a highly manipulative individual and we'll, there'll be lots more on that later. But it's also difficult to prove exactly what happened behind closed doors. Neighbours and those that knew him said that Ted's descriptions of Samuel were completely inaccurate and that he was, quote, a fine man. With one of Ted's cousins saying the following about Samuel. The characterization that Samuel was a raging alcoholic and an animal abuser was a convenient characterization used to make people justify why Ted became the way he was. From my limited exposure to him, nothing could be farther from the truth. He was a fine man. His daughters loved him dearly and had nothing but fond memories of him. The same with Ted. I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's just be someone's abusive and extremely erratic and behavior like that doesn't mean they do that in front of everybody they meet. And, you know, a lot of things happen behind closed doors. And even Ted... From what we've read there, he's flip-flopped from saying one moment saying he's a fine man to one moment saying he's swinging cats. So, yeah, which one yeah. is it? Exactly, Ben. That's, that's what we're tr- we can't, can't be both. Yeah, it can't be both, Ben. In 1950, when Ted was four, at the suggestion of her parents, Louise took Ted to live with her and her two of her cousins almost 3,000 miles away on the opposite side of the country in Tacoma, a working-class suburb of Washington. Tacoma or not Tacoma? I guess that was the question. Shortly after this move, Louise was attending an adult singles night at her local church when she met a man by the name of John Culpepper Bundy. That's an interesting middle name. Culpepper. With the red hot Culpepper. No, the red Culpepper. No. Johnny, who worked as a cook, maybe that has something to do with it, at the local hospital, immediately wooed Louise and the pair quickly entered a relationship. The pair got married just after six months and went on to have four children together, with Johnny also adopting Ted as his own. Theodore Robert Cal then became, as we all know now, Ted Bundy. Mm. 
Just a little look up on the old Culpepper for mm. you as well. The name origin is、uh, from Old England, which is coiling to cull, select, and gather. It was probably from an occupational name for a herbalist or a spicer. Oh, so this is a little spicy boy. Yeah, a little bit of a spicy、oh, that's what boy. I've taken from that. He's a little、yeah. spicy boy. Okay. <laughs> Johnny would regularly take Ted and his younger brother Rich fishing and camping, but Ted never warmed to Johnny. Maybe it was a, a single uh, quilt uh, sleeping bag. Ted would later make three separate but quite biting remarks regarding Johnny to his mother. One being that he was not and would never be his real father. Two being that he was not intelligent or sophisticated, which is quite weird. It's a nasty. Spicy put down, yeah, yeah. And three being that he didn't make much money. The pair held a very distant relationship from this point onwards. It's weird that the mum used that spice to the spice man from the son, because <laughs> that's not going to nurture a nice relationship anyway. And he's going, he doesn't think I'm sophisticated. Piece of shit. Meanwhile, back in Tacoma, accounts on Ted's childhood experiences would continue to vary. At school, Ted was considered a very highly intelligent and charming young boy with a future full of promise ahead of him. He was popular and well-adjusted, but outside of school, his life was considered unexceptional and uneventful. However, being this seemingly ordinary facade, there lurked something far more sinister. From as early as the age of nine, it is alleged that Ted began to harbour intense feelings of sexual arousal in relation to various crime novels and detective magazines that he would stumble upon. I did the last part. I stumbled upon some crime magazines, but not the rest. As a youngster, yeah, 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 but not the rest. Don't know. No, no, no. But Ted, in in this case,、uh, it all depends on whose words you believe and how this all came about. As with everything else in his childhood, but apparently Ted began to search for for whatever reason.、Uh, I'm not sure, but apparently he began to search through his neighbors' garages and bins in order to find things to steal. And apparently, this is how he found some adult fiction、uh, depicting naked women who were often in very unfortunate circumstances. He found at the time what was considered a wide variety of damsels in distress. Some books that document Ted's life in extensive detail suggest that as a young boy, Ted would literally dumpster dive in search of porn, which is yeah, quite an image. Wearing a little snorkel mask on, cock in hand. It's the bloody J from in between, isn't it? I guess. Other accounts suggest that Ted discovered books and magazines belonging to his grandfather and stepfather, respectively, which contained illustrations depicting deceased or heavily maimed women. These reports also suggest that he found their pornography collection, including magazines such as Nightcap, La Femme, Follies, Taboo, Fling, Playboy, and Modern Man, all of which included sexually violent or sexually provocative imagery. Whatever the case, these images greatly aroused the young Ted, who became extremely confused regarding sexualization from this moment onwards. And yeah, I mean, the, this moment in Ted's life is something that he would hold to his dying day as something that sort of changed his life and possibly formed somewhat of a motive for him. As is the case with a lot of his childhood, it's quite contradictory. So Ted would outright deny that he ever found or consumed such materials, stating that he shuddered at the thought of anybody liking that sort of thing. But strangely, he would openly admit to far more disturbing acts of a similar vein. In a later letter to one of his biographers, Stephen McCaw, Ted claimed that as a young boy, he would quote. Consume large quantities of alcohol and then canvass the community late at night in search of undraped windows where he could observe women undressing or whatever else could be seen. So he's basically saying he's above consuming any kind of adult fiction, but he's beneath being a pervert. You not gonna do a joke there? Pe- peeping Ted. You'll hear in interviews later in life that he blames pornography, and that that, that, that was a big part in the, the shift of his mindset. But then he's also denied that it ever was part of his life. So it's for a lot of Ted's life, it's either what he says goes or what everybody else says goes. That's what I've kind of found with this case. Trying, trying to think of a <clears throat> expression there. 
cock in the hand is worth two in the bush. If he's peeping, a mag in the hand is worth uh, nah. Just go, if anyone has an answer for that, give us a message with how that could work. Cock in the hand is worth two. Nah, doesn't work. Welcome back, guys. <laughs> Series nine, baby. Despite all of this being well documented, animal cruelty, harming uh, other children, objectification of women, alcoholism, exposure to violent pornography, and a fractured family life, Ted would claim that he had an excellent upbringing and a really ordinary childhood. I think, like, the pornography thing of, like, finding things like that when you're young, I think that's particularly, like, oh, well, that's crazy that he found that. Like, that isn't such such a wild thing. Doing it. But... Yeah, obviously the the family dynamic is very bizarre from the sound of things. Is obviously his grandfather being very um, violent and abusive. That's the kind of the key things that mm. so far that you think his childhood is is different to the to the average. I think him being sexually kind of curious isn't the most wild thing. Again, so so Ted being like kind of exploring the sexuality and things like that. I know obviously it's a very early age, but that's not one to make you think. Oh, he. He was always destined to the life he'd go on to lead. Yeah, definitely. No, totally agree. I think as well, the introduction to alcohol at such an early age, and then this allegation, what he informed his biographer, that he would get drunk and basically, as a child, go looking around for windows to look in. Yeah. That's more than curious. That's icky. Yeah, icky. Sandy Holt, who was a childhood neighbour of Ted's in Tacoma, paints an incredibly contrasting picture of what Ted was as a youngster, and it almost completely contradicts what Ted would say in interviews about his happiness and friendship circles. In the neighbourhood, there was a distinct difference between the haves and the have-nots. Ted's family was in the have-nots. It was not a happy childhood for Ted. He wasn't one of the guys. He was skinny and very girly looking, and he only accentuated it by wearing short shorts. And boys didn't wear short shorts. Girls did. I knew him from the age of 5 through to 15. As well as this, for a long time, he had a horrible speech impediment, and some words he just plain couldn't pronounce. So it was very hard to understand him. I think his speech impediment came from the abuse of his grandfather. Ted told my brother that his grandfather enjoyed beating him and putting him down, calling him a bastard that should never have been born. He found it really difficult to fit in, and he wasn't really helping himself. Her recollections of a young Ted become far darker and far more vivid. He was just different, even among his peers. <laughs> what? It was just different. It was, uh, <laughs> it was good. He was just different. Even among his peers, he was odd. He thought he was athletic and number one in class. He was neither. He liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear. He had a temper. He liked to scare people. He would take younger children from the neighbourhood into the woods and terrorise them. He'd take them out there and strip them down, take their clothes. You'd hear them screaming for blocks. I mean, no matter where we were, you could hear them screaming. I mean, that is terrifying. I mean, Sandy, some of the language Sandy's using there, she obviously isn't a big fan of him. I mean, if he's doing that kind of thing, you can completely understand why, but some of it just sounds so like, he thought he was athletic and I'm more in class. He was neither. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's just like he's not allowed to wear short shorts. I mean, Sandy, come on, is there? You know, people can wear what they want. We know that, but uh, but they were really short. All right, Sandy, no, but really <laughs> short. Like you could see, you could see a bollock. All right, Sandy, maybe you should be looking. But yeah, Ted's behaviour continued to escalate. According to Sandy, she's spilling more tea here, Dan. If you know, that's not what she said. <laughs> he hung one of the stray cats in the neighbourhood from one of the clotheslines in his backyard, doused it in lighter fluid, and set it on fire. And I heard that cat squealing. And by the time that someone got out of there with the hose, the cat was gone. Where'd he go? <laughs> oh, dead. I think so, yeah. It 
Where'd he go? Have you done a great escape? <laughs> he used to be a white cat, now it's a black cat. I'm going to call him Sooty. <laughs> Fuck no. He used to build traps in the woods and catch animals in them to take home with him. One little girl went over the top of one of Ted's tiger traps and got the whole side of her leg split open with the sharpened point of the stick that she landed on. He never got in trouble for any of it. He should have been sent to juvie or at least placed on... I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. A police record. I mean, that makes perfect sense. If he was to be, you know, some police intervention there could have possibly, you know, helped yeah. shape him. But yeah. It's, it's dark. She said the whole neighborhood can hear the screams from the woods and, and mm. was aware of this cat incident. I don't get how that's not escalated or, or at least reported. That would have changed a lot, I suppose. Yeah, you'd, you know, we'd like to think so. I mean, we obviously we have done cases before. People have gone to juvie and it hasn't really done anything. But you never know if, you know, if they went in there and they were led the right, on the right path, it could have changed. But uh, yeah, mm. fucking horrific. Again, perhaps unsurprisingly, Ted would contradict these claims. He claimed that all he ever did that was even close to being similar to this was hide in the bushes and jump out to scare his friends. But that's vastly different to uh, the stories that Sandy has said about him. Yeah. He also stated that as an adolescent, he found it hard to, quote, know what made people want to be friends and really struggled with the majority of his social interactions, not being able to naturally form any kind of relationship, be that a friendship or any kind of romantic, intimate relationship. But again, is he looking for a little bit of sympathy there or is he just not? He's raised in a house with his mother as his sister. Well, yeah, which would have been very confusing and we'll, we'll get on to that, but... He, he, he claimed that he had friends at school. He didn't lack for playmates. He just seems to change with the wind, doesn't he, in terms yeah. of what he says. One minute he's saying one thing. That I think maybe probably later on in prison he would maybe come out to say more of the truth later on. But you know, immediately he was just 
full of lies, wasn't he? Definitely, yeah. A note briefly worth mentioning here is that when Ted was 14 and living in Tacoma, some people believed that he committed his first murder. Uh, and at this point, uh, an eight-year-old girl by the name of Anne Burr uh, was abducted in her sleep and she remained missing for more than 60 years. And the reason why this link does come back to Bundy and there are lots of links out there in terms of additional murders he could have been responsible for is that Ted actually lived just two blocks away from her house and he also delivered newspapers to that particular house being more than aware of Anne and yeah as we'll get into in the timeline he, he did seem to have a fondness for for much younger uh, women and girls um, which is yeah a horrific element of this case he would always deny any kind of involvement in this case though many women and girls as I mentioned would start to go missing at around this time frame uh, from the vicinity of Ted from this point onwards and at this point he's just 14. Obviously America's a big place, there's a, a lot of people going massive. missing at this time. M massive, yeah, massive place actually, yeah, not just big. Yeah, it, there was a pattern that would form throughout Ted's life wherever he went, girls and young women would go missing. Ted Blackhole Bundy. Yeah, that's, I prefer Cole Pepper as a middle name, but uh, you get what you're given. Mm. You can change it. As he grew into his teenage years, so too did Ted's aggressive behaviours. Before reaching the age of 16, he was arrested on at least two separate occasions on suspicion of burglary, trespassing, as well as vehicle theft. However, when Ted turned 18, and yeah, maybe, maybe this could explain why um, he wasn't as much on the radar, these charges were removed from his record, which was customary at the time in the state of Washington. So yeah, he's essentially been, been given a clean slate as he's turned 18, which I'm I mean, I can understand the idea of the second chances and stuff, but at the same time, it's like at least go, I don't know, the police could keep it on record and maybe, I don't know. It's, it's bizarre. It's very bizarre. After graduating high school, Ted attended the University of Washington in order to study Chinese. He would drop out of college after just two years when he then took up a series of minimum wage jobs, including that of a chauffeur, a suicide hotline operator, checkout bagger, shelf stacker, and a bodyguard traveling around multiple parts of America whilst he worked. Quite the array of jobs there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think we've done a post before about him being a suicide hotline operator, which, you know, is very ironic in terms of what we do, but from shell stacker to bodyguard as well. I'm not, I'm not sure in which order it was, or he could have done both at the same sort of part-time roles. Yeah, the suicide hotline operator one. So he would work alongside a lady called Anne Rule, um, who was actually a retired detective and aspiring crime writer um, who would sort of sit at a desk adjacent to Ted. And she would actually later go on to write one of his biographies. It's been very much criticised because it was actually quite defensive of Bundy. It's called The Stranger Beside Me. But yeah, Anne Rule will come up in our timeline. But yeah. If Anne Rule had an autobiography, I'd probably say never be, it'd be called Never Be Broken and it'd be A Rule. Never, never to be broken, which is quite powerful. Um, <laughs> quite a good read as well, so I do recommend it. Two pivotal moments occurred during these years, one being that Ted had first become immersed in the world of politics whilst at college, and the other being that he met a woman by the name of Diane Edwards, also whilst at college. Ted fell head over heels for Diane. Maybe he was cycling. Uh, terrible fucking... <laughs> Ted fell head over heels for Diane, becoming absolutely spellbound by her, and the pair quickly entered into a relationship. She was a woman who was the epitome of my dreams. Diane was like no girl I had ever seen before, and I considered her the most sophisticated, the most beautiful creature possible. She was the only woman I ever really loved. So the complete opposite of his stepfather, her being very sophisticated and him being an absolute <laughs> bum. Uh, with the confidence found in their first proper relationship, Ted seemed to become a far more socially active individual, finding a passion for law, psychology and politics. 
began involving himself in various Republican political campaigns, volunteering to work for Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign, as well as later working for Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. Bundy's work ethic was very well received by his colleagues, and he was described as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. Ted took to his work so much that he was once apprehended for sneaking into one of Evans' political opponent's speeches and secretly recording the speech to take back to Evans. So yes, he was happy to break, kind of break and enter and sneak around. One of the discoveries, he was interviewed on television and he just comes across as, I don't know why all the attention's on me. I was just, you know, and you can even see, I don't know why I'm smiling thinking about him being interviewed because it gets very bad. But yeah, he, he seemed to love that initial spotlight. Yeah. And he quite liked the idea of, uh, of being caught, which again, hmm. Unfortunately for Ted, after just over a year of dating, Diane made the decision to end their relationship before moving back in with her family in California. Diane put this down to Ted having, an, and this is quite uh, awkward given what he said about his, uh, his stepfather, uh, but Diane put this down to Ted having an apparent lack of ambition as well as being quite immature. This moment, which came at a peak developmental point in Ted's life, absolutely shattered him. And some have argued that this moment in particular would go on to spur his horrific actions against women later in life. Ted's behaviours and mental state seemed to rapidly spiral out of control. He began to drive across multiple parts of the country, seemingly to do nothing at all. I can't remember the case that we did where someone drove from, like, Texas to Malibu all in one night. Casanova Killer was driving around, wasn't he? He was, dri- he was driving, yeah. He, he was, was driving, driving. boy. He was driving. It was all to go to the beach and do some sort of signal to God. Ah, oh, that's going to irritate me. But yeah, Ted would spend a lot of time on the road, um get through a lot of petrol but years would go by and ted would travel from washington to san francisco to colorado to arkansas to miami to philadelphia spending time cruising around several small towns within each state during this time he returned to washington where he met elizabeth clofer and this is a lady that will be seen in quite a lot of uh, photos with ted but one particular infamous photo is where she's cradled up in ted's arm and this is a relationship that would remain on and off and kind of under a dark cloud until very late in ted's life elizabeth once planted a tree and unfortunately for her it's only a four-leaf clover <laughs> it doesn't work either uh. elizabeth was a single mother who had a three-year-old daughter named molly at the time that the pair met uh, and ted would very quickly become a father figure to molly though she would later in her adult life recount stories of ted being sexually and physically abusive to her when she was between the ages of seven and ten So Molly alleged that Ted would wait until Elizabeth was out of the house, where he would then begin to play games with her that involved indecent exposure and molestation. She also alleged that when she became uncomfortable with these acts, Ted would slap her in the face, push her over, or place her head underwater in the bathtub. Elizabeth was never aware of these incidents and had completely fallen under the spell of Bundy by this point. One of the games was play hide and seek and then Ted was basically hidden under a blanket and once she kind of found him and took the blanket off, he was naked and he started doing a weird chat about being invisible or that he was invisible and yeah, she she knew then even at that age, a young age, it was it was wrong, it was strange but she said that it was very out of out of um, sync of how he normally was. So yeah, it's, 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 it's odd because the documentary I watched, she didn't really go into great detail. That was the kind of big incident. So obviously there's different things out there. So maybe more has come out since then. Yeah, it, it's yeah, very disturbing and worrying behaviour. Just to go back to the driving to Malibu thing, I've just remembered who it was. Who was it? Gary Heidnick. Just before he opened his church. Oh. Church. So yeah, a lot of serial killers spending time on the road. 
Whilst all of this was going on, Ted travelled to California for a Republican Party business event, where he had arranged to go for a meal with his ex-girlfriend Diane. Yeah, he he held on to Diane, saying, "You're not you're not um, you're not motivated enough. You've you've not got goals." Uh, you're immature. So he he held on to that and so he arranged to go for a meal with her. Diane was blown away by how much she perceived Ted to have grown as he boasted of his political exploits, bright future and life experience. So yeah, he's uh, very much wooed her once again. The pair re-entered their relationship with great passion and Ted would now see both Diane and Elizabeth at the same time over the next year and he would fly across the country each time that he saw Diane. How he managed to get away with this, I mean, he would tell he would tell uh, Elizabeth that he was going away for work and conferences, but it would get very, very messy very quickly. The relationship grew so strong that Ted would even introduce Diane to his work colleagues as his fiancée. So poor Elizabeth. During the peak of this affair, and perhaps to impress Diane further, Ted enrolled at the Seattle University of Law in the hopes of later becoming a lawyer. However, things took yet another interesting twist. In January of 1974, Ted completely and unexpectedly cut off all forms of contact with Diane. So he basically just started ghosting her completely and not returning any calls or letters. Diane was finally able to reach him on the phone two months later, where she unleashed a bit of a verbal tirade on him, uh, demanding to know where he'd been, why he'd been avoiding or ignoring her, and what was going on with their relationship. Diane said that Ted took a short pause before calmly saying, Diane, I have no idea what you're talking about before hanging up and Diane never heard from Ted again. The question there is, did, was that all along he just wanted to scorn her and did all that work just to do that? But then you think, why is he introducing it to the work colleagues of the fiancé as well? Unless that's really just trying to make her believe it even more so. But yeah, that's quite the... Um, Ted's a bitch. Yeah, I think that's fair. Ted bitchy, more like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So as the next few months went by, Ted became a more and more bitter and agitated individual. He had seemingly coerced Diane to fall back in love with him, only to reject her the way that she had rejected him. He resumed his long cross-state drives. He became more distant with his friends and family, and two actions that had a horrific correlation began to occur. Ted began skipping classes at Seattle University, and young women began to go missing across Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. And it is here that we move to the timeline of Ted Bundy, the Lady Killer. A quick disclaimer here is probably due. Though we are about to go through a verified timeline of a four-year crime spree, which will include 20 murders at the hands of Bundy, the first official murders are still very much under scrutiny. So obviously, as we mentioned earlier, there's allegations that from as early as the age of 14, um, he had killed his first victim. He would go on to confess to 30 murders and is actually suspected of being responsible for between 40 to 50, with some actually believing that he may have killed up to 100 people. So the reason why these numbers vary so massively are down to Ted's ever-changing stories. Obviously, he told different people different things at different times, but also to the sheer volume of missing women that disappeared around the same time as his crime spree, which obviously covered a huge area uh, to include seven different states. He can and has been linked with hundreds of different missing persons cases between 1974 and 1978, but also in the years building up to that, Ted told some detectives that he began killing in 1969 and claimed at least a dozen victims victims between 1969 and 1973. So we're going to go by what has officially been confirmed and then we'll talk about some of the other linked ones uh, later in the timeline. So we're going to start at shortly after midnight on January 4th, 1974. This date marks what is believed to be the first confirmed attempted murder at the hands of Ted Bundy. It also occurred just hours after Ted hung up on Diane in the phone call that Tom just mentioned. 
Bundy, aged 27 at the time, was out walking the streets during the early hours when he made the decision to break into the basement apartment of 18-year-old dance student Karen Sparks. Karen, who was described as carefree and outgoing, lived in the apartment with three other men, and she would regularly go to a local sports bar named Dante's with her roommates. Many believe that this is where Ted first spotted her, as he was also a regular drinker over at Dante's. After breaking into the apartment, Ted silently made his way to Karen's room, where he then bludgeoned her several times in the head with a metal rod taken from her bed frame, attacking her whilst she lay sleeping. Ted then proceeded to sexually assault the unconscious woman with the very same rod. He did all of this and was then able to flee the property through a window with his makeshift weapon whilst her roommates remained asleep in the adjacent bedrooms. That is the thing, as you're going to find with this timeline, the, the barbarity and the brutality of this case is, is off the scale. But also, he will continue to mix up his MO um, to throw people off the scent slightly. And he's able to conduct such a, a ferocious attack here whilst people are asleep in literally within a few yards. Yeah, which it's the, it's the arrogance or the... Or maybe he didn't know exactly that, but the fact that yeah, he did these these crimes in such kind of heavily populated places is just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, such a surprise that he wasn't caught a lot sooner, wasn't it? Later that day, her roommates found her unconscious and surrounded by a pool of blood after she did not attend her scheduled meetings. 911, as well as Karen's mother, were called, with Karen's mother speculating that she had fallen down the stairs in a drunken stupor. Her injuries told a vastly different story. Ted struck Karen so viciously that she was hospitalized in a coma for 10 days. She had severe external and internal wounds, including a ruptured bladder. Though Karen was miraculously able to survive, she was left with permanent 24% brain damage, as well as significant loss to her vision, hearing, and walking balance for the rest of her life. To date, Karen remains positive about what happened, stating that she is thankful Bundy was not able to abduct her from the apartment, potentially due to one of her lighter sleeping roommates being in the bedroom next door. Early hours of February 1st, 1974, the reason for Karen Sparks being so thankful that she was not abducted would become abundantly, or as Ben has written here, a Ted abundantly clear as this year progresses, Bundy, who had seemingly gotten away with his brutal attack the month prior, was once again walking in and amongst the darkness of the streets of the University District in Seattle. This time, Bundy breaks into the basement apartment of another University of Washington student, 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy. Bundy attacked Linda while she slept, beating her unconscious before dressing her in a change of weather-appropriate clothes and carrying her out of the apartment. I don't know why that just feels creepy, but it does, it's something he does later on as well, which is particularly like just skin crawling, but he's, so he will beat them unconscious and then worry about them getting rained on. Yeah, he was able to then place her in the vehicle without making any kind of disturbance, where he then drove her to a secluded part of Taylor Mountain before he raped and murdered her, dumping her body amongst a heavily wooded area before returning home at sunrise. So worrying about her getting wet and cold to then take her to do that. It's just such an odd like, little detail. This mountain location would become synonymous with Bundy and young female students would continue to disappear around Seattle at a rate of one per month for the rest of 1974, many of which ended up buried in or discarded on Taylor Mountain. The evening of March 12, 1974, Bundy shifts his MO quite drastically in terms of time, approach and location. 60 miles away from Seattle, Ted wanders the city streets of Olympia during the evening. Here, he encounters 19-year-old student Donna Gail Manson, who was on her way to meet friends at a local jazz concert. It's not entirely clear what happens next, though there are two prominent theories in terms of how Donna met her demise. 
Bundy was driving at the time a Savannah Beige Volkswagen Beetle, which he had modified to remove the inside passenger door handle, essentially preventing any passengers to escape from within the vehicle on their side. The two theories suggest that Bundy either offered Donna a ride to the concert, or he feigned an injury with his arm in a sling and asked her for help loading some items into his car. Either way, whichever one of those happened, a brutal attack then took place, resulting in Bundy raping and murdering his second victim. He then decapitated her before discarding her body on Taylor Mountain. And yeah, this is the thing with the, with the Bundy case, which I found, I don't know why I found it so surprising, but because he has been glamorized and he's had all these sort of Hollywood portrayals, I wasn't aware of sort of the morbid extent of this case and how disgusting some of his acts were. And this one in particular is, is, is absolutely disgusting. He would then take her head back to his girlfriend's house before quickly making the decision to burn it, uh, according to Ted, down to the last ash due to a fit of paranoia and cleanliness in her fireplace. Donna's friends did not think that this was out of the ordinary for her to not show up, and so authorities were not alerted about her disappearance for over a week, which by that time, Ted and any remaining evidence had long gone. And a little tidbit for you. Benny's tits, give him a listen. Yeah, and a little tidbit here for you. Um, I looked into fireplace heat and the uh, heat in which you need to achieve in order to get rid of bones for this episode, obviously. Mm. Um, and the average fireplace uh, achieves a maximum temperature of roughly 600 degrees Celsius, whereas to get rid of bone fragments, apparently you need between 750 and 1,000 degrees Celsius. It's a lot of Celsius. And you have, you like quite a cold fire, don't you, Ben? And there's two experiences I've had with your fires now where it's been... Yeah. Lukewarm fire. Yes. Well, this is why I was... The, the whole colourblind thing, uh, I wasn't able to become a fireman because of the difference between a hot and cold flame. You've been like, this, this fire's hot. <laughs> ben has a fire um, fire heated uh, hot tub and we actually went around there for, for an evening, us three, just had a little chill in the hot tub, which was lovely. And uh, um, <laughs> Dan had to kind of take over the fire duties to get it really pumping. Yeah. And then when we filmed our... Uh, big shout out to Sam Lance, uh, when we filmed our promo video for, for this series. Ben was left in charge of the fire, came back and it was pretty <laughs> in the cabin. There was no electricity in there, it was just a fire. And yeah. uh, Ben was left in charge of the fire and it was, yeah. It was there was also a dead bird in the fire, so I don't know yes. if that was you, Ben. In my or... defence. Oh, I was just trying to test the bone theory, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah, Ben the dead bird in the fireplace. <laughs> Which came first? No. Um, you came first. Well, no, 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 no. That Was that the night we all tested who could hold their breath the longest as well? It was, yeah, like, and I killed yeah, it. Dan killed it, yeah. Did you yeah. kill it? I'm practically tr he Tom was, Cruise. He was, oh, I yeah. killed my breath. Well, short and uh, <laughs> short <laughs> weirder, yeah. <laughs> Scientologist. Yeah, so the, the reason for the temperatures there is that some people believe that he didn't actually, he's just, he's just sort of making a boast to say, oh yeah, I took a head back to the apartment and yeah. did this in the fireplace. He did, yeah, people Ted talks shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and to add an extra chilling element to this particular murder, so Donna had actually told her friends in weeks prior to her going missing that she had met and formed somewhat of a friendship with a man with a broken arm on campus. I did just check as well, Ben, I mean, uh, on that, because I remember that in the opening scenes of Silence of the Lambs, um, Buffalo Bill actually helps, someone helps him put something to his car because he has a broken arm or he's, he's injured. And it's, yeah, it's a direct link. They used mm -hmm. Ted Bundy inspired that for the, the, the author as being a way of coercing people into the car. Takes us back to Gary Heidnick again because that was sort of, everyone was saying, oh Just yeah, Just leave the real Heidnick life. alone. <laughs> He's done. The real life Buffalo Bill. But yeah, so many other killers played a part in inspiring that yeah, character. Yeah. yeah. 
interesting. On April 17th, 1974, once again, Bundy alters his location. He stalked the streets of the city of Ellensburg late at night on the lookout for his third victim. Ellensburg was more than 110 miles away from his home. In a very similar series of events to that of Donna Gail Manson, Bundy encounters 18-year-old straight-A student Susan Elaine Rancourt in a car park while she's making her way to the cinema. He abducted Suzanne before raping and murdering her, decapitating her in the process. He then disposed of her body on Taylor Mountain. It's highly likely that Bundy used his arm in the sling guys, as two other women would later come forward to say that a man with an arm in a sling had asked him to help load books into his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. How big are those fucking books? Yeah, I think it's the one, the one arm thing. It's probably his weaker arm as well, so he couldn't quite keep balance. Unless it's like, you know, a novelty check, but it's a novelty check book. One of those big ones for charity. And he's like, I, can't, I literally can't do it. Well, don't have a Beetle then, Ted. But um, yeah, I think books are weird on. Mm. that's not the big takeaway from that bit no no yeah I don't think that was why he was doing it but yeah May the 6th 1974 the following month Bundy travels even further away from home and begins to cruise the area in search of yet another victim his travels take him 260 miles away from home to the city of Corvallis in Oregon here he abducts 22 year old Roberta Kathleen Parks while she is travelling to have coffee with her friends Bundy would later claim that he seduced Roberta after meeting her in a cafeteria and asked her to go to a local bar for drinks with him. She agreed, and once she got in the car with Ted, he attacked, bound and gagged her and diverted their journey for an agonising six hours towards his home in Washington, which is just absolutely horrific. He stopped at two secluded wooded areas en route where he bludgeoned Roberta, raping her twice on the journey before eventually murdering her when he arrived back home in Washington. And yeah, quite a sad note on Roberta. Uh, she was in a really difficult phase of her life at the time of her murder. She had fallen out with her parents and was constantly arguing with her long-distance boyfriend at the time. She was undergoing a great deal of stress regarding her education and her future plans. Due to the fact that it was public knowledge that she and her boyfriend, who, uh, who was actually a scuba diving instructor over in Louisiana, were having a lot of heated arguments, he for a long time was suspected in being involved in her disappearance. Uh, and Bundy would actually later interject on this, saying the following. Society wants to believe it can identify evil people or bad or harmful people, but it's not practical. There are no stereotypes. We serial killers are your sons. We are your husbands. We are everywhere. We grew up in regular families. And there will be more of your children dead tomorrow. Horrible but powerful, wasn't it? June 1st, 1974. Bundy once again alters his location. This time cruising for victims not too far away from his university in the city of Berean, Washington. Here, late at night, he encounters 22-year-old Brenda Carroll Ball in the parking lot outside of the Flame Tavern, a popular dive bar in the area. It is claimed by Bundy that he took Brenda home with him with a pair engaged in consensual sex before he strangled her in her sleep. However, many believe that he abducted, attacked, raped and killed her without any form of consent as her body would later be found with several severe injuries to the skull. There are two conflicting reports about how Brenda left the bar that night. One report states that she left by herself and was planning on thumbing on a lift, as in hitchhiking. Another claims she left with an unidentified man. Police were informed by many bargoers at the Flame Tavern bar that Brenda was last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. You would have thought as well, like Ted supposedly being quite intelligent, that you realise the sling thing is going to be quite a noticeable, like, bit of evidence or things that people recognise as being a kind of common pattern. Definitely. I think it's the fact that he's obviously moving across different states at quite a distance, but still, yeah, it's still young women being approached by, yeah, a guy 
with his arm in a sling. Mm. The whole him feigning an injury thing really makes me uncomfortable. I don't know why, just that whole thing of a, a man with his arm in a sling being sighted. Uh, all these different scenes, it's just... Uh. I'm uncomfortable by the rape and the murder. Uh, yes, yeah, that's also just terrible. <laughs> the early hours of June 11th, 1974, Bundy opts to remain local and begins to search for his sixth victim just 10 days after killing Brenda Ball. He abducts 18-year-old student George Ann Hawkins just yards from behind her sorority house as she is making her way home from her boyfriend's dorm. Through the guise of a physical injury, Bundy lured her to his car before pulling a crowbar from his vehicle. He then struck her in the head before placing her in the back of his car and fleeing the scene. Bundy then handcuffed George Ann and drove 20 miles away to a remote part of Issaquah. Here he raped and murdered her via strangulation before spending the entire night sat by her corpse. Bundy seemed to have a morbid obsession with Georgianne, as he would later go on to revisit her corpse three more times over the rest of the year, which... You don't hear about that. No, the other... I, yeah, I'm the same as you. I thought with Bundy, it was like, before obviously doing the research and before looking into it, when you first hear about it, you just that you not just think, but you think it was violent murders on within the place, and then obviously like sexual crimes as well, which obviously horrific, but then you hear about the decap- decapitation, sitting with corpses, doing all that, as I said, it gets a lot more morbid and taking the heads back to home it's like well i'm gonna go into a bit further detail later on but it's that then you have people like falling after him and it's like yeah i think that's probably why you don't assume all this stuff but yeah astonishingly bundy traveled back to the scene of the abduction the very next day and was able to collect georgian's earrings and one of her shoes from the car park that he had assaulted her in all whilst the police were methodically combing the very same area in search for evidence witnesses by this point had come forward to say that they saw an awkward looking man this time in crutches with his leg in a cast struggling to get a suitcase into the car. They also said they saw the same man standing in the alleyway between George Ann's sorority house and her boyfriend's dorm on several occasions for extended periods of time. This man, as you might have guessed it, drove a Volkswagen Beetle. And he's changed up slightly, obviously now the leg in a cast, and it can't be one of those sort of permanent formed casts, can it? So the the only image I've got in my head is, you know, when Michael Scott burns his foot on a Foreman grill and then he's got like bubble wrap and crutches and he's... That's the only image I've got for that. For he's sort of pointing one of the crutches at the car, saying "Help, help, pop." Um, but it's horrible, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it can't be a proper cast, can it? That's no, I don't think you would have got the. Um, what do you used to do around balloons? Paper, Paper mache. mache. Paper mache. Yeah, I think it would have the, ma- the, the mache. Just loads of bandages. Could have been that, couldn't it? Just a big yeah, but I imagine bandages above bit bubble wrap for sure. At this point, Bundy has claimed six victims in six months, injuring a seventh for life. Police are not able to link the crimes as they occur under varying circumstances across two different states and public pressure was beginning to weigh even heavier. The only thing they had in common were the victim types, young, attractive, white college students with long hair parted in the middle. So police advised them not to walk alone at night in groups less than three and to avoid hitchhiking at all costs. The parted in the middle hair thing is interesting, isn't it? Because you just might, I'm going to get some bangs. I, f- <laughs> I figured that was more of a coincidence rather than an actual demographic like, yeah. he's after. If you look at Elizabeth and look at the people that he goes on to kill, there's a very striking mm. resemblance between her and the actual victims. With the crimes becoming more widely reported in the media, more similarities to the attacks were noted. The disappearances all took place in the dark, typically during midweek, usually near areas with ongoing construction work, and were within a week of midterm or final exams for students. All of the victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans when they disappeared, and at many crime scenes there were sightings of a man wearing a cast on his leg or on his arm, in a sling, and driving a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. The bunny drove a Savannah Beige model, which looks yellowy beige during the daytime. I think with in the dark, I don't know how colours work, but in the dark, 
it looked sort of brown and tan, but in the daytime it looked yellowy beige. So he, that was again how he was able to get away with it. It's like that blue dress, grey dress. Yes. Yeah. That's the original. A haunting point to mention about this moment in the timeline is that Ted had actually started working as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where he was given the task of writing a pamphlet for women on rape prevention as a result of the rising level of attacks. So that in itself is just ridiculous. He would also start working at the DES, which is the Department of Emergency Services, an agency that was tasked with searching for the missing young women. So yeah, he's very much hiding in plain sight here. I don't imagine his armour in any kind of sling um, whilst working in this office. At this agency, he met and began dating single mother Carol Ann Boone. And again, Carol will come up later in the timeline. And he once again began cheating on his girlfriend, Elizabeth. Things were also at a crossroads with Elizabeth as, on the 4th of July, Ted pushed her into the Yakima River whilst the pair were rafting without saying a word or explaining himself afterwards. Yeah, which is, this is a really odd moment. He knew that Elizabeth was not a great swimmer, but fortunately the current pushed her towards the shallows and she was eventually able to get back on the raft with him. Elizabeth would later recall. I came up sputtering and grabbed the rope on the edge of the raft. Two days for the moment to do more than hang on. I looked up at Ted and our eyes locked. His face had gone blank, as though he was not there at all. I had a sense he wasn't seeing me. He didn't move, he didn't speak. I could find no expression on his face. He was looking right through me. I think she mentions as well about his eyes looking black, like his eyes just completely going black, which we've heard that a lot of times with a lot of these cases, just how, you know, it seems like they know they're no longer there or something's taken over them, and it's, it's very creepy. Well, I think, as you mentioned, the distinct similarity between her appearance and many of his victims as well. Maybe, if they were in an isolated area enough, he considered it briefly. I don't mm. know. But yeah, very odd behaviour. July the 14th, 1974. With his confidence seemingly through the roof at this point, Bundy makes the decision that he is going to completely throw investigators off the scent by committing murder during broad daylight and during the weekend. He goes to a very crowded beach at Lake Sammamish State Park more than two hours away from his home. This time, Bundy is wearing a white tennis outfit, fitting in with other locals at the beach. However, his arm is back in the sling. Tennis elbow. <laughs> Sorry. No. It's good, it's good. Yeah, Dad? Real thing. Real sling? Uh, no. No. Cut that out, please, please. Bundy begins to introduce himself to numerous women that appeared to be on their own. And again, you'd think that he would use a different name, but he introduced himself as Ted in what appeared to be a British accent. Oh, shiggly brick Ted here. I've seen an injured man play tennis. I want to get this in the car. Can you possibly shiggly brick help me do that? It's me, Hugh Grant. It's very good, Hugh Grant. I don't know how to say this. Why did MJ come into it? Shiggly brick There's a man stood in front of a woman. Yeah. Um, he would then ask the women that he approached if they could help him unload his sailboat, um, which is not not a euphemism, from his car. At least four of these women outright refused, whilst one woman got as far as Ted's car before leaving when she noticed that there was no boat attached to the back of the Volkswagen Beetle. However, two other women would not be so lucky. 23-year-old probation caseworker Janice Ann Ott was seen by many others on the beach having a conversation and then subsequently leaving the area with the man with the sling. She was never seen alive again. Shockingly, four hours later, Bundy returned to the exact same location and began performing the exact same routine. Do you want to do your Hugh Grant again? 
Not when they're dead now. I think it's... That's true. 19-year-old Denise Mary Nasland unfortunately fell under his spell in a very similar way to Janice Ann Ott, and Bundy later alleged that he took Denise to the same location where he had been holding Janice captive before violently raping and assaulting each of them in front of one another and then murdering the pair with a knife. Again, Bundy is able to flee the scene without any physical evidence being left behind. However, the fact that he used his real name and did not disguise his appearance or vehicle whatsoever was quite an arrogant decision that would play a significant role in the police's search for a perpetrator. I don't know what this is, because is he feeling invincible at this point? Yeah, I mean, as we said, his MO changes a lot throughout, but the fact now he's doing it, you know, with two victims in the same place, I think it, it must be with this stage, you know, he does feel invincible and... I think another thing, thing to point out as well, um, it was made a big deal in one of the documentaries I watched in this, was the kind of infrastructure for America at that time. This kind of person going around all the c country and, you know, killing people. It was kind of really highlighting how, you know, how do the police deal with this? Because it's such a vast location and we've now people, it's so accessible to go from state to state. How do they police that? How do police work with one another? Like we've, you know, we've done crimes in England where the police didn't work together, let alone in America. How can they work together to kind of narrow down? And yeah, Ted feeling invincible here, I think, yeah, definitely. He's up in the ante every time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even sharing information, basic sharing of information back then was, was not being done. And that's yeah. how he was able to continually get away with it. So from this, obviously, I, I think he's just feeling invincible now. He's, 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 he's committed murder during broad daylight. Detailed descriptions are taken by more than a dozen witnesses and a composite sketch is created and distributed amongst regional newspapers and magazines as well as various television networks. And yeah, it's it's a fairly good sketch yeah. of, of, of Bundy of the time. So that is shared um, uh, across multiple states. Many people report to the police that they believe it to be Ted Bundy upon seeing the sketch. However, they deny any possibility of a clean-cut law student with no previous criminal record. Obviously, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Ted's record was cleansed when he turned 18. So all of these police forces basically believed, you know, this guy, no, he's got no record. He's a law student. He's not capable of such crimes. And horrifically, Ted's work colleagues would even joke with him that it looked like he was the murderer, to which he would simply smirk and say, it just couldn't possibly be me. I'm the one trying to stop the guy. Yeah. <sighs> so this marks nine murders and one attempted murder during a seven-month period, with no doubt numerous additional attempted murders or abductions that simply aren't recorded or were not disclosed by Bundy. During this same time period, more than a hundred young women were reported missing in Washington and Oregon. So it's again, it's not beyond the possibility that Bundy could have committed many more murders during this time frame. So on that um, composite sketch and, you know, the way he looks, etc., etc., uh, I've got a new little uh, little segment I want to I wanna go to. Ooh. Dan, I'm going to need you to create me a little jingle as well, actually. I can do that. Thank you so much. You know, I, I, we like alliteration over here in the podcast. Of course we do. Uh, we use it a lot. You know, it's quite popular to say like hot takes and controversial takes, but mine, they're not always going to be hot. So I'm going to go with Tom's tepid take. <laughs> and maybe we do some, like, some sizzling down or some sizzling going, oh my God, that's, that's quite, that's not too hot, but that's quite, that's quite warm. I wouldn't pop that in my mouth. As that could be maybe in there. I don't know. I, yeah, I could probably work with that. Yeah. Tom's tepid take. It's kind of terrific. What should I do something else? Tom... Tom's tepid take. Ooh. Go on. Is that it? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Tom's tepid take. Tantalising. 
Ooh, Tom's tepid take. Temperature, not hot. Yeah. There you go. So yeah, this Ooh. is my kind of hot take. Pop it back in the oven. Uh, ironically, um, it's going to be basically Ted Bundy, hotty or notty. After seeing the, the composite and obviously just seeing pictures of Ted Bundy, and, and the big thing about Ted Bundy is the fact that he's so alluring and charming and, and some people think gorgeous. I wanted to kind of dig into the fact, is he actually attractive? Before we get into it, terms and conditions, this is ignoring all of his heinous and disgusting crimes against women. Not that they should ever be ignored, but within the context of this slightly lighthearted segment, we will just not focus on them. Purely the evil bastard's aesthetic. Just, just get that out of the way. Obviously, I know, you know we're not, not looking at that. We're just looking at him as, a, we're being shallow, we're looking at him as just a shell of... Are we not including sort of personality traits? No. Okay. No, I, I don't think so, because that's part of it, isn't it? Mm. The person to do that. So I was a bit sneaky here and I went on to our, we've got a Facebook group now, by the way, guys, which you more than welcome to join us. I could murder a podcast. It's called listeners and true crime, a discussion group. So you can go on there and discuss cases. It's absolutely free to join over on Facebook. If you have a little search for it, have a search. There's a lot of people chatting in there. It's a lovely place. It's a good place to discuss and meet other like-minded people. But I, I just put in there going, having an argument with someone about if Bundy is hot or not. And I put a little poll up there just to see what the people in the group thought. And um, it's quite interesting results. So 11% said, hell yes. 76 said, nope. And 13%, hmm, he's okay. I thought he was going to be a landslide, but no. You think? Yeah. Well, he's known as being, I mean, I guess the thing, I think it's hard for people to <laughs> separate the man from the, the rape and murder, obviously. But um, a few of the kind of key comments on it were Fionn, uh, you know, a part of the big part of the cult as well. She said his confidence was attractive. He was not. It's like Afron playing him was attractive. Heidi said, I think he probably was back then. And Becca also said, maybe back in them days. What do you guys think? Do you think he, yeah, you agree with that? In the era, he, he, he was relatively good looking? Perhaps or? in the era, but for me, it's a big fat knotty. Mm. Yeah, big, what about yeah. you, Ben? Hotty? Yeah, it's a knotty. I think for the pool that you're fishing in, in the terms of the aesthetics of serial killers, he's probably top half of the table. Yeah, I mean, you got, yeah, yeah. But I think actually as he got older, he got less... Less see, I think he, he looks the kind of guy you would see on a nudist beach doing stretches who stands too close to you and tells you about his wife really left him. Mm. I can definitely see that. Mm. And I he's, think, yeah, Zac Efron playing him, is. Yeah. I think he'd be very happy with that. Bundy. Yeah, uh, yeah. As well, like, no offence, uh, he just had a very, didn't care about the unibrow much, did he? let that grow. Yeah. Um, and he just, his hair oh, yeah. was always a, a bit of a... It's the eyes that scare yeah, me. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I just thought... That's a big key thing with this case. And like we will go on to, obviously, the aftermath people like falling over him, going to the courtroom and things like that. I don't see it. I just don't see it. So I think um, from I Can Murder a Podcast, we're saying, no, he is not hot. Tom's tepid take. Bundy is a rotty, not a hottie. Now let's get back to the case. I might get a coffee and a biscotti. <laughs> see you later. Zing. No, I, like I didn't get biscotti. No biscotti, but we're back. But yeah, um, Tom's tepid take. That was good. August 1974. Bundy relocates to Salt Lake City after being accepted into the University of Utah Law School. Not only does this move take him away from the scene of his previous murder spree, but also takes him away from the eyes of his girlfriend, Elizabeth. He would initiate more than a dozen affairs whilst living away from Elizabeth, with many of his intimate relationships later becoming survivors of Bundy. Arriving in a new state and assuming an almost completely new identity as Ted the Law Student, Bundy is quick to work. Just two weeks after his relocation, on the 2nd of September, he abducts, rapes and strangles an unidentified female hitchhiker almost 350 miles away in Idaho, before returning to the scene the following day to take photos of her lifeless body. Dismembers her corpse and throws her remains into a nearby river. 
Exactly a month after the attack, on the 2nd of October, Bundy was cruising around Holiday, Utah, just 11 miles south of Salt Lake City late at night. Here he notices 16-year-old student Nancy Wilcox as Nancy is crossing the road on a dimly lit intersection. Bundy veers his vehicle towards her in an angle that forces her to walk into an apple orchard. He then exits the vehicle and chases Nancy when she refuses his offer of a lift. He then attacks her, restrains her and takes her back to his apartment where he repeatedly rapes her and strangles her, having kept her captive for over 24 hours. Bundy claims to have discarded her body 200 miles away in Capitol Reef National Park, but it was never found. October 18th, 1974. Just over a fortnight later, Bundy abducts 17-year-old Melissa Ann Smith, who was actually the daughter of a police chief in Salt Lake City. She was last seen leaving a local pizza shop at approximately 9.30pm. Many believe that Ted had approached her and offered her a lift home, before abducting her and keeping her captive for almost a week, before strangling her with nylon stockings and disposing of her body. And again, he's able to maintain his... his his uh, academic studies, his, his, his different jobs that he's maintaining and his relationships whilst also having someone captive here and this would become a pattern for him as well. Halloween 1974, late at night Bundy spots a lone hitchhiker, 17 year old Laura Ann Aim, who is leaving a Halloween party by herself. He offers her a ride and takes her back to his apartment where he proceeds to keep her captive before beating her, raping her and strangling her with nylon stockings. Her naked body was found a month later on Thanksgiving Day in American Fork Canyon, Utah, where hikers found her on the side of an embankment. There were a few similarities between the two 17-year-olds Bundy had murdered, obviously Melissa and Laura, not only their age and appearance, but the fact that Ted had kept both of them alive for an extended period of time before killing them. He had also visited their corpses numerous times, applying makeup, perfume, and even shampooing their hair. That was a bit that I was, I was referring to earlier when I said like the creepy care and attention as if it's like they're kind of his own dolls and it's very odd and unsettling. Again, I just don't know how I never knew this about him. It's mm. all kind of hidden under that sort of facade of... Well, of, now you, of, know, you know now, so... I know, yeah, yeah, which is good. The more you do know... So hopefully you don't make a mistake. Form an opinion. Mm. Oh, November 8th, 1974. Two contrasting events occur on this day which paint a picture of the volatility of Bundy. During the late afternoon, Bundy was scouring the Fashion Place Mall in the city of Murray, where he approached 18-year-old Carol Duranch, who was by herself. Bundy introduces himself as Officer Roseland, claiming to be a plain-clothed police officer and informs Carol that a man had tried to break into her car. After reviewing the damage to her vehicle, Bundy offers Carol a lift to the local station. She accepts, and things get very sketchy from this moment onwards. When Carol points out that the so-called Officer Roseland was driving in the opposite direction to the police station, he swiftly pulls the car over and attempts to place handcuffs on her. In the chaos, Bundy inadvertently places both cuffs on the same wrist, and Carol is able to flee the scene and eventually report the incident to the legitimate police. And again, if he's, well, I suppose if he's under the guise of a plain-clothed officer, it's not beyond belief that he's trying to get her into a Volkswagen Beetle. But yeah, I mean, yeah, very slapstick from Bundy here as well. He's put both cuffs on the same wrist and luckily Carol's able to flee. Just a few hours later and Bundy is unfortunately far more clinical in his next approach. Aided by the darkness, he... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> no, but seriously. 
Aided by the darkness, he uses a very similar approach with 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent, just 20 miles north of where the previous attack had taken place. Bundy had allegedly approached several students directly outside of Viewmont High School and asked them to come and identify a damaged vehicle with him in the car park. Deborah, who was leaving an evening theatre production at the school in order to pick up her younger brother, was never seen alive after encountering a, quote, strange man who was approaching numerous students. Bundy kept her alive in his apartment for several days where he would use her as a sex slave before murdering her and disposing of her body over a hundred miles away in Fairview, Utah. Later, investigators found the keys to the handcuffs that were placed on the same wrist of Carol Deranch in the school car park. Over the Christmas period of 1974, Bundy's girlfriend Elizabeth Kofer called King County Police on at least two occasions to report her concerns over her boyfriend potentially being involved in a number of disappearances of young girls in the area. She was subsequently interviewed in detail by the Major Crimes Unit and, as a result of this interview, a number of witnesses were called forward from the Lake Sammamish incident. Obviously, this was the, the daylight attacks of Bundy. But none of them could correctly identify Ted in a photo lineup. Though his name was added to a watch list, there was no forensic evidence or credible evidence to link him to the crimes. But his own partner has now grown suspicious. And yeah, his name is becoming more and more um, familiar to local police. Well, actually, multiple states' uh, police departments. January 12, 1975, with suspicion rising, Bundy moves his crimes to a new state, this time to Colorado. While sitting in his car in the parking lot of the Wildwood Inn, located in Snomus Village, Colorado. Snomus. It's nice, isn't it? Bundy sports 23-year-old nurse Karen Campbell walking down a well-lit hallway from the elevator to her room at the inn. There are photos of this specific hallway which will pop up for you now. He either ambushes or persuades Karen to get close to his car, where he then abducts, rapes and murders her. It can be speculated that he also kept her captive for a number of weeks, as her naked corpse was discovered a month later, just outside of Wildwood Inn, with a number of serious injuries to her skull, mortal stab wounds and a slit earlobe. March 15, 1975, 100 miles away from his last murder, Bundy, once again feigning injury and crutches, approaches 26-year-old ski instructor Julie Cunningham and asks her to help load his ski boots into his car, claiming that he has sustained the injury on the mountain. When she begins to help him, Bundy strikes her over the back of the head with a blunt instrument, believed to be a crowbar, handcuffs her and proceeds to sexually assault her and murder her. Julie's corpse would be another one that Bundy would frequently revisit in the weeks and months after her murder, on one occasion driving for more than six hours to spend the night with her body, which was never found by investigators. It seems to me like he, the, the when he's starting to revisit these corpses and these scenes, it's a lot later on in his timeline, isn't it? In terms of mm -hmm. after he's committed these murders, so it's, it's, it's developing into this. It would be it's the morbid fascination of if he was never stopped, what would be the next stage in the way he's doing this? Would he be storing the bodies in a certain place? But yeah, it seems to be a new thing that he's started doing. Yeah, the next escalation, and and none of this would have been proven unless he stated that he'd done this. And it only, yeah. only seems to be select victims. I mean, there's still half a, at least half a dozen he's revisiting, but it seems to be select victims that he's opting to do this with. And I, I just wondered if there was some, not, not a connection he's formed, with, obviously, but there's, there's some reason for this. There's some reason for him selecting them, and I, I, I'm curious as to why. What's the furthest you drive to spend the night of a corpse, Ben? Good question. Okay. Good question. This was in the pub quiz uh, last week, actually. What, specifically about you? Yeah, it was. everyone got it. Really hot, really hot. Yeah, sort of. Uh, that, he's driving, driving far. home to Corpsmas. <laughs>
April 6, 1975, Bundy abducts 24-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson, who had just left her family home on a bicycle after having an argument with her husband, not far from Great Junction near the Utah-Colorado border. She had planned on riding her bike to her parents' house in order to stay with them, but unfortunately encountered Bundy and became his 16th confirmed murder victim. Bundy threw her body into the Colorado River. Her bike and sandals were discovered together the following morning on a nearby bridge, but her body was never found. May the 6th, 1975, the following month, after travelling to Pocatello, Idaho, Bundy claims his youngest confirmed victim when he abducts 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver from outside of her junior school during her lunch break. He lures Dawn to his car before binding her, taking her to his room at a nearby Holiday Inn, where he then rapes her and drowns her in a bathtub, before disposing of her corpse in nearby Snake River. Her body was never recovered. So not only was this one of his youngest confirmed victims, but it was also one of the most gruesome murders, as Bundy was able to provide in-depth, intimate details about Lynette's life in a later confession, meaning that he would have held conversation with her for quite some time before he decided to kill her. At around the same time, Bundy was making plans to marry his girlfriend Elizabeth, who had actually at this point already reported him to the police several times by now, whilst also continuing his affair with Carol Ann Boone and numerous other women. Apparently when he was, you know, lying to go see Carol Ann Boone, he was saying, I'm just calling a cab um, every time. But um, it actually was the initials, Carol Ann Boone. So he wasn't lying to Elizabeth and that's why he was able to get away with it for such a long time. And ironically, she was a taxi driver. Sorry, continue. No, sorry, yeah. That's right. Cheers. She missed that fact out. Cheers. Elizabeth claims to have had her suspicions due to the fact that Bundy was constantly in debt, constantly changing his appearance, and was also turning up with random items to include crutches, surgical gloves, a collection of meat cleavers, and an oriental knife, as well as a bag full of women's clothing. Unless you're saying, are you saying you're going to a murder mystery, maybe, and you don't know what character you are? That's a good, that was a very quick thinking from you, suspiciously. I don't know how he's going to worm his way out of that. Almost get away with all of them, apart from the bag full of women's clothing. A collection of meat cleavers. I mean, his job is nothing, you know. No. Collector. Yeah, why well, do you keep a collection in, the, in your boot? I don't know. Odd. June 28th, 1975. Bundy abducts 15-year-old Susan Curtis from the campus of Brigham University in Provo, Utah. She's last seen making her way back to her dorm during the evening in order to brush her teeth and go to bed. Bundy claims to have raped and murdered her before burying her in Price, Utah. Like so many others, her body has never been found. Throughout the majority of 1975, Bundy had begun to appear on multiple police forces' radars as a person of interest. He fit the appearance given by many of the witnesses. He had the name Ted, which was given in the Lake Sammamish attacks, and he also has a vehicle that consistently matched witness descriptions. With suspicion continuing to grow, Bundy goes quiet for the next two months. August 16, 1975. During the middle of the night, Bundy is observed by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Haywood, driving slowly around a quiet residential area of West Valley City, Utah. When Haywood approaches Bundy, he speeds off and so they make the decision to chase and apprehend him. Upon detaining him, they begin a search of Bundy's Volkswagen, and what they find is quite staggering. Firstly, they notice the passenger's seat had been removed entirely and placed in the rear of the car. They also noticed that the internal passenger door handle was removed and therefore could not be opened from the inside, which is a horrible little detail. Upon searching the boot of the vehicle, they found the following in a holdall. We'll pop this photo up for you now because it's quite some infamous pictures within this. A ski mask, a torch, two pairs of gloves, a second mask that seemed to have been made from cut-up women's tights, string, 
a crowbar, a pair of handcuffs, multiple waist bags, a coil of rope, so not just a bundle of it, a coil, a belt and an ice pick, which is, yeah, again, hard to argue your way out of that. Police initially suspected this to be a burglary kit rather than a murder kit, and Bundy responded to questions about the items by saying that the ski mask was for skiing, and the rest of the items were all standard household items. A mask cut out of tights? A pair of handcuffs? Mm. Crowbar, you could argue, perhaps that being in the car is not crazy. And he could have said, well, you know, I've got a weapon here because there's a killer about. And the crowbar, I can't open the passenger door, so I crow it. Mm. If that's the True. term. Yeah, what could be? I crow it. But yeah, it's a bit of a weak uh, excuse there. They then found a map of Colorado ski resorts with a circle drawn around Wildwood Inn, as well as a poster that advertised an up-and-coming school play at, at Viewmont High School. Both were locations where Bundy had committed abductions and subsequent murders. It is alleged that the officers missed a dozen Polaroid photos of the victims that were kept in the car by Bundy, which is... I mean, yeah. I mean, they're thinking, like we said, it thinks it's a burglary. They're not, they're not thinking at first that it's, it's been murdering, but... Still a big miss there. As this was not sufficient evidence to detain him, Bundy was released but kept under police surveillance. The following month, Bundy sold his car to a local teenager. The police immediately impounded the vehicle in order to search it more thoroughly. Imagine the teenager being livid. <laughs> Business transaction you do, Ben. <laughs> got, got a bargain, though. Got a bargain. At <laughs> uh, night time, it looks different colour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in the day, absolutely different, yeah. I found some photos in it, which is a bit unnerving, but you know. When doing this, they found three strands of hair that matched the sample they had obtained from Karen Campbell's body. As a result, Bunny was brought in to stand in a lineup where numerous individuals, including Carol Durant, the woman that was handcuffed on the same arm, were able to point him out as Officer Roseland. Despite Bunny changing his hairstyle just before the lineup, he was charged with aggravated kidnapping and an attempted criminal assault. His parents immediately paid his $15,000 bail, but the case later went to trial. The thing is, with his later life, his parents aren't really mentioned much at all, are they? No. Obviously, they're still very much supporting him. I'm sure he's spinning some yarns with them about how well law school's going and everything like that. Um, but yeah, they're obviously still supporting him and completely unaware of the situation he's getting himself into. Oh, definitely. Not only was it his victims that he was manipulating and his partners at the time, but yeah, he very much spanned that with with local police and his family. Well, I know he was interested in politics and law and psychology, wasn't it? So that's kind of why he wanted to study it. But you also think maybe he did that. Going back to that relationship where he he got dumped, got back with her, led her on for a bit and then just to dump her. Mm. Did he enroll in these courses because it would give him a bit of a cover story and make him look more innocent perhaps and perhaps even more insight into getting away with everything yeah absolutely in june of 1976 after a four-day trial bundy was sentenced to serve 15 years in utah state prison he tried to escape multiple times during his first six months in prison and was even once found hiding in the bushes with a quote-unquote escape kit loves his kit. Mm. Bundy was transferred to Aspen Prison in January of 1977 when it was announced that the state was going to charge him for the murder of Karen Campbell. In June of the following year, Bundy infamously opted to represent himself in his trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. As a result of him representing himself, he did not have to appear in the courtroom in handcuffs or leg shackles, which I'm, I'm sure you can see where this is going. During a recess on June the 7th, Bundy asked to go to the courthouse library in order to do some additional research for his case. However, when the escorting officer's backs were turned, he opened a window and escaped into the Aspen Mountain wilderness by jumping from the first floor window badly injuring his ankle in the process. 
Yeah, so this is his, his first official escape. Bundy was actually able to survive in extremely harsh and hostile conditions whilst on the run for six days. He survived by breaking into various hunting cabins and camping trailers, from which he stole food and clothing. He was re-arrested and placed in Glenwood Springs Jail, where his friends and family advised him to stay put. And if he had followed their advice, this case may have taken a much more drastic turn, and Bundy might have been a free man sooner than expected and never charged with all of the additional crimes that would follow. On December 30th, 1977, after more than six months of meticulous planning to include the stockpiling of $500 cash, losing 16 kilograms in weight, as well as the acquisition of a small hacksaw and map of the prison layout, I mean, how a prisoner has, has stumbled mm. upon all of that, Bundy was able to cut a small one square foot hole in his cell's ceiling, through which he would escape. As it was the festive season, prison staff were limited, and they did not realise Bundy had escaped until 17 hours later. Bundy then travelled across the country from Denver to Chicago, before then heading down to Florida. He survived by shoplifting and burgling over the next fortnight, whilst also trying to find work on construction sites. Bundy was now listed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives. Just thinking the one-foot hole, I mean, it's going to be hard for you guys to get context from, <laughs> but... It's the shoulders, isn't it? That's going to be the hard part. That, I think, last season, trivia was escape, escape attempts. And one was a yoga professional and he murdered someone and he was able to manipulate his body and go for a small hole. But one foot is very... Mm. Yeah, that'd be tricky. Yeah, like I said, you have to really fuck your shoulders to do it. January 15th, 1978. After being a free man for just 16 days, the bloodiest nights during the reign of terror orchestrated at the hands of Ted Bundy would occur. Bundy noticed a faulty lock at the rear door of Florida State University sorority house known as Chiamega, and he would wait until 2.45am before he made his way into the property. Over the next 15 minutes, Bundy would attack four sleeping women, all of whom were located within a hearing distance of an additional 30 women, who heard absolutely nothing, where he was able to kill two of them in the most brutal of fashions and seriously injure two others. It's very Richard Speck. Yeah, definitely Speck vibes there. Bundy bludgeoned 21-year-old Margaret Elizabeth Bowman with a piece of firewood before strangling her with a pair of stockings. He then struck 20-year-old Lisa Jeanette Levy over the head before strangling her, also biting deeply into her buttocks and tearing one of her nipples open. He did all of this before sexually assaulting her dead body with a bottle of hairspray. He then made his way into another bedroom where he attacked two 21-year-olds, Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. He broke both women's jaws, removing teeth from Karen in the process, and stabbed Kathy in the shoulder, also fracturing her arm. The headlights from an approaching vehicle caused the attacks to cease and Bundy to flee. Both women had concussions, skull fractures, crushed fingers and internal injuries, but fortunately both were able to survive their attacks. And obviously every single thing he's done is absolutely horrible, but it's really progressing, isn't it? He's getting more blood, hung blood hungry, more confident, especially the fact he's on the FBI's most wanted list where you would have thought he'd want to just dissolve away and be lost forever, like... He's going, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to, I need to kill. I need to kill. I need to rape. I need to do these horrible things. No, absolutely. It's, and as you said earlier, it seems to be, you wonder how far this would have escalated if, I mean, if, like he said, he had stayed put, there was a chance he would only have served between sort of 10 to 15 years and could have been out again, or perhaps even got away with less on, on good behavior, which you think he might, might well have done. But yeah, he's, as soon as he's imprisoned, he needs to find a way out. He won't stay in one place and then... As you said, this is escalated and it's absolutely horrific. And as well, to do this within hearing distance of, was it 30 other people? Yeah. To be a, that ferocious, that aggressive in a confined space in the dark and get away with it, it's, yeah. It's baffling. After fleeing into the night and with his bloodlust not yet quenched, 
Bundy broke into the basement apartment of 21-year-old dance student Cheryl Thomas, located just eight blocks away. Like those in the sorority house, he attacked her while she slept and in the most brutal of fashions. Bundy fractured her skull in four places, whilst also fracturing her jaw and dislocating her shoulder. Though Cheryl survived, she was left with permanent deafness and impact on her physical balance, which ended her dance career. Bundy once again went on the run, leaving behind a face mask that matched the one found in the back of his Volkswagen, as well as several semen samples. On February the 9th, 1978, just over three weeks later, Bundy makes his way to Lake City, Florida, in a stolen university van. Here, he waited outside Lake City Junior High, where he abducted 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. So this is the second uh, 12-year-old that Bundy would abduct. Having introduced himself to her as a firefighter named Richard Burton, Bundy took her to an isolated location where he then proceeded to rape her before stabbing her several times, cutting her throat and throwing her remains into a pig shed. Kimberly would become confirmed victim number 20 in the last of Bundy's confirmed murders, or, or at least the ones we are able to confirm. Six days later, at around 1am on the 15th of February, Bundy was spotted driving a stolen vehicle by a Pensacola police officer named David Lee. When David informed Bundy that he was under arrest, Bundy pushed David over and ran off into the streets. The officer went on to fire two warning shots at Bundy before eventually tackling him to the ground. The pair then fought over Officer Lee's pistol before Bundy was overpowered and subsequently arrested. Officer Lee did not realise it was Ted Bundy he had arrested until Bundy said to him, I wish you had just killed me. Probably as well by this point, obviously how much weight he'd lost to squeeze through that one foot square. In his in his cell, but then also yeah, he's been on the run. KG. Yeah, it's um he's not going to have a great deal of strength. Well, no, saying that, look what he's done in the last yeah. couple of weeks. Uh, who knows? But we're now going to move on to the second trial as well as his incarceration. Which obviously, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, this could easily have been a two or three parter uh, in terms of the, well and beyond. But we're going to condense it slightly here so that we've been able to focus a bit more on his crimes in the timeline we've just gone through. Over the next two years, Bundy would face three separate trials, during which time he used a bizarre legal loophole to propose to Carol Ann Boone while she was testifying in court. And yeah, there's some very infamous footage of him doing this and it all seems to be for the attention and the cameras and it's just, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. She accepted and Bundy proclaimed to the courts that they were now legally married. All three of the trials resulted in Bundy being found guilty and being sentenced to the death penalty. Ultimately, he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder. Whilst awaiting his execution, Bundy gave several television interviews over the years, and I think this is what I found myself most familiar with out of all of this case, and that's why I was kind of so shocked at all the atrocities in between. Well, I knew he'd done them, but the extent of which, uh, yeah, was, was horrific. And yet all of these are, these interviews are available on YouTube. He is known for a number of fairly outrageous quotes throughout many of these interviews and goes from maintaining his innocence to blaming pornography for his actions. He was said to have been a somewhat isolated figure who didn't talk to any other prisoners or guards when he was not giving interviews, though he did receive an additional disciplinary charge for holding unauthorized conversations with John Hinckley Jr., another high profile inmate who had attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. He was also found to have had two, and how he's done this, being on death row, he was also found to have had two hacksaw blades in his cell in 1984, which were immediately taken from him. 
Bundy was a well-behaved inmate who was known for his support for the investigation to solve the Green River Killer murders. He gave his quote-unquote expertise to investigators for the case and was even given access to some of the evidence, which is, is quite remarkable. And he would refer, uh, infamously refer to the crime's perpetrator as the River Man. Well, he used to be the Frogman, didn't he? Yeah, get on swimmingly. Probably both wanked over fro frog spawn. <laughs> On January 24th, 1989, uh, which was a Tuesday, after spending almost nine years on death row, Ted Bundy was executed via electric chair at 7.16 in the morning. Was it a Tuesday, yeah? It was a Tuesday, yeah. Pop that in. I knew I'd get that bit. So that Why out. is that relevant? Does it come... Just, it... just me being me, isn't it? Bundy did not make a food request on death row, so was given the state's default last meal, which was steak, eggs, toast with butter and jam, hash browns, coffee and juice, though it has been reported that he didn't have a single bite. And his final words were, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. His ashes were later scattered on Cascade Range in Washington State. There are as well, there are some images of Bundy after his execution and it, many people have said, it looks like his corpse is kind of smiling or smirking and it's, yeah, horrific. The night before his execution, after exhausting his appeals and realising that his execution would not be stayed, Bundy finally admitted to 30 separate murders and gave intimate details of the murders to investigators from four different states. Do you think that's a plea, well, a, try, a play from him to try and, you know, delay the execution? Because the night before he's doing it. It could be yeah, clearing his conscience a little bit. I don't think that. I think if he could then be like, I'll show you where the bodies are. Well, that's true. I mean, he, he, he mapped out, I think because of the, the volume of them, he was able to map out some of them, but not mm. not all of them. And there are so many others, almost double that, that he's still suspected of. Yeah, like you, I probably maybe he is trying to sway it. I mean, it, I don't know. I don't know. And at the time Bundy was executed, uh, a large crowd had gathered outside of the facility where they began to sing or chant, Burn Bundy Burn. Obviously made them very, very happy when the confirmation came through. But yeah, that was the case of Ted Bundy, the lady killer. Yes, uh, as we said, a big case to start the series with. Obviously, it, you know, we only do one episode on, on our cases, so we haven't gone as in-depth on certain things as maybe you've heard previously or before. And just to know, obviously, if you want to learn more about the victim stories and the backgrounds, there's lots of different websites and lots of different documentaries and podcasts out there that go into a lot more depth in, in regards to that. But we obviously covered the key moments that we believe in, in the timeline. What I was going to say is in the Facebook group, there was, it, through doing our research, there was there's some amazing websites that actually, rather than focus on Bundy, they focus on the victims and they give you real in-depth stories on each victims rather than them being just a number. And there's also an interactive Google map, which takes you on the journey of Bundy's life and victims that is quite good. So I could post both links into the Facebook group for, yeah, for people it. if that works well. It sounds good. Sounds good. And yeah, I think my takeaway from this is like, you know, Bundy is the first one that I think a lot of people hear about or, you know, know, know the name at least. And yeah, the, the crimes are so much more grotesque than uh, initially ex like you, you kind of expect, especially like we said before, like there was a lot of interest from, from, um, like women towards him, find him attractive and whatnot. And then like, when you look at it, you know, he de decapitated women, he would sleep with corpses, he, he, you know, would kill children and rape children as well. All these things, and obviously horrific, horrific violence, he went, he like dished out like unreservedly. And yeah, the, the, the scary thing is what he would go, what he possibly could have went on to do if he was given the chance. And mm -hmm. I definitely think there's, there'll be murders out there, which, you know, are, Ted Bundy, which will never be solved. 
Definitely. Yes, yeah, so much more to it um, in this case. But uh, yeah, it was, it's one that we obviously, of course, we had to cover and we thought it'd be a great one to start the series off with. Yeah, thank, thank you so much to all the new audio people. We've got a heck of a series lined up, um, some very interesting cases coming up. So also at the time of recording, um, we have around 150 extra episodes over on icmap.co.uk, including our side podcast, AI Carumba, which uh, we basically use AI to put Tom, Dan and myself in various ridiculous situations and see how we would fare in those situations and we also have a taster tier on there um, if you'd like to just try the site out before becoming a member and that starts from around one pound a month um, and you can sort of dip your toe a little bit into the cult yeah so the water's lovely if you want to jump in further if you fully can jump in and we do have a prestige membership where we have discords and we're regularly talking in there we also do regular lives with the discord and um yeah it's uh it's a lot of fun so be sure to check it out and uh since the last series we have released new merchandise sunny side up merchandise we'll pop a few pictures up now um very much the kind of diner style we we all very much enjoy the mugs the new exercise big mugs for a lovely coffee but yes, be sure to go over there and check all that out. And also some big news. Um, we will be heading over to CrimeCon in London later this year. Head over to our socials or our website for exclusive discounts. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're not sure exactly what we're doing yet. And if, if you're interested in going, uh, why not use our discount code ICMAP to get 10% off the CrimeCon um, tickets. But yeah, we'll be over there. Very excited to, to, to get involved with CrimeCon. Obviously, it's been on, it's on our list for a, a long time and I'm very excited to see any of you guys down there. 100%, 100%. Ben's got to love a little uh, little segment, haven't you, Ben? A tiny little one that you want to be introducing? Yes. A little miniature one? So we, we sort of started it towards the end of Series 9, didn't we? It was sort of like the, the weekly cryptic clue mm. about uh, next week's episode. And I believe uh, Dan's gone above and beyond yet again for another jingle for us. So we'll, we'll play this for you now. Hit it. Oh, I thought of something that doesn't quite work, but I'm using it anyway. Oh, the jingles are top. <laughs> Benjamin Carter's cryptic clues. Everyone gather round for some clues that can be quite cryptic, but he's going to give them to you anyway. Hope you can figure them out. As we said, there's a lot of, yeah, diverse. I would call this one of probably our most diverse series to date in terms of looking at the lineup. Uh, But the cryptic clue for next week's episode, it's a case that you might stare at for a while. And the more you look at it, the more you might start to see different things. There you go. Yeah, spooky a little bit. (laughs) Spooky a little bit. Spooky a little bit anyways in those words. But yes, oh. we are back. We are we are buzzing and we've got, yeah, 12 episodes this series. Lots of big cases. Lots of cases that have been requested before. Also, we're still going to be doing the uh, the audience vote. So yes, be sure to follow us on the socials to keep an eye on that. And just a quick reminder to join the Facebook group and follow us on there and, and give us a message and, and, and let us know what you think of the new setup, the new series. Uh, we love seeing all the shares on Instagram and whatnot. So yes, Happy to be back and thank you once again. Absolutely. Happy New Year, one and all. And we'll see you in the next episode. (laughs) It's February 5th. I'll say Happy New Year until around July. If it's not too late. You right, Dan? Anyway, guys, like we always say. We say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, hmm. If you call yourself a frogman and then do that, we just oh, I've done it already. Don't don't do awful things to people. That's a good rule to live by. Yeah. Don't build tiger traps and not make people aware of it. True. Yeah. Because that's bad as well. Both solid advice, yeah. Yeah. Don't feign injuries.
don't feign injuries. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, don't yeah. don't murder and rape. Anyway, guys, until next time, to Pip. See you later. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.